Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Alec, how are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Well, great. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I, I really appreciate it. Um, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big things you're interested in? Yeah, happy to do that. So uh, I work in public policy in Washington, D.C. been doing that for about five years now. I've worked at four different think tanks doing tech and innovation policy um, during that time. So I started out doing a master's in economics at GMU. While I was there doing that master's program, I was a research fellow at the Mercatus Center, uh, which had a wide variety of projects. Um, and then after that, I joined the Niskanen Center as a technology policy fellow. Um, and that's, you know, spring of 2017. Um, and I got really interested in antitrust was hot at the time. And that's one of the biggest areas in technology. And so I started researching that, learning about it um, uh, and working on it. And then after the Niskanen Center, I worked at the International Center for Law and Economics. Again, mostly like regulatory issues related to the FCC and the FTC. Um, and then after that, I went to the Progressive Policy Institute um, where I was a director of technology policy. Again, mostly working on antitrust and privacy issues. Um, but the most exciting thing is that I've made a big career change or a big transition recently. Um, my colleague, Caleb Watney and I, he also worked with me at the Progressive Policy Institute. We both quit our jobs in August of last year. Um, and now this month we are launching our own think tank. It's called the Institute for Progress. Um, and really what we wanna do is be the policy home in Washington, DC for the progress studies and effective altruism communities. And what does that mean? So progress studies, it is you know, kind of, it is what it says on the 10, um, started by Patrick Collison and Tyler Cowan. They wanna accelerate scientific, technological and industrial progress. Like how we just go faster in a wide variety of important domains. Why does it feel like we've slowed down since the 1970s um, in terms of the pace of progress? So we've been, we've been stagnating and that might be changing now. And how can our policy think tank help uh, along those dimensions? And then the effective altruism part of that is really how you filter or select which policies to work on. So effective altruists like to think in terms of three factors, like what's tractable, if you were to work on it, could you make change? What's important, like it actually matters if you change the policy. Um, and what's neglected? What are people not working on that they should be? And so we kind of use that lens um, to filter what we work on. And our three main policy buckets out of the gate will be uh, biosecurity, how do we make the next pandemic go better or not happen at all? Um, immigration, with a particular focus on high-skilled immigration. Um, we think there's more tractability there. Um, and lastly, meta-science. How do we apply the scientific method to how we fund science? Um, more experimentation, diversification, focus on breakthrough research, et cetera. Um, so those are our first three core areas, but we're gonna be broad and go into more in the future. Um, but we're, that's what we're building, we're hiring, um, growing, and we're, we're excited to get started on that. I love that, I really love that, Alec. What was the kind of $20 bill you guys saw on the sidewalk in terms of, of policy and this intersection with progress studies and EA? When I think of project, progress studies and EA, I think of like West Coast, right? And we're both East right. Coast and interested in these topics, but it does seem to be a very like tech driven, less like policy driven. Is that like a fair assessment? And, and what was that, you know, what was that opportunity you saw, you and Caleb saw? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think um, 
one thing I like to say is that I think people who work in public policy underrate the importance of technology for achieving their public policy goals. Uh, and people who work in technology underrate the importance of public policy for achieving their technological goals. And you can kind that. of look at this, like I think COVID's a great example if you wanna get, get a concrete example of how this yeah. works, right? So, uh, you know, in COVID public policy was like, how do we stop this pandemic? Um, vaccines are the best answer, right? And so vaccines are technology. How do we accelerate techn technology in that area? Well, Operation Warp Speed, you know, leveraging government purchasing power and creating a certain demand of like, if you create a vaccine that is effective against coronavirus to a certain degree, the US federal government will buy hundreds of millions of doses for you, right? It's a guaranteed customer at a fixed rate um, to really give you market certainty in that demand. Um, and that, that accelerated the development investment. And, and in many years earlier, you know, um, various government funding agencies like DARPA had funded early research in mRNA vaccines, had funded Moderna um, at various points in time. So like there was federal research money earlier in the pipeline, but then at the very end, also the crucial part of like, who's the purchaser of this final product? Government played a pivotal role there. And then similarly, if you work in biotech and you want to, you know, accelerate um, investment and research and innovation in your area, um, working collaboratively with government um, in terms of them being the earliest purchaser of the most risky technology can, is really underrated by the private sector. Because, you know, the private sector, they're, can lean, especially in tech, can lean libertarian sometimes and think like government only gets in the way. Yeah. And definitely gets in the way sometimes. Um, but a lot of times I think we underrate the importance of things like government being the earliest purchaser of radical breakthrough technologies that aren't cost effective for any private sector actor to purchase. Um, and the government can help, you know, get on that decreasing, you know, economies of scale um, curve to where that you get it to the private market in the end. I love that. And it seems like Operation Warp Speed, we, it seems like, uh, what's your assessment? I feel like we did a pretty good job, especially considering like how I, I would rate, you know, uh, US state capacity at this time. And, and maybe I'm, you know, just bananas about that. I, I don't know. But but how would you rate Operation Warp Speed just, uh, you know, objectively by itself? Yeah, I think it was a huge success. And I think um, I, I'm predicting and we'll be writing a paper on this shortly as well. Um, the Operation Warp Speed was so successful to become a meme in public policy <laughs> in the same in the same way that the Manhattan Project is a meme. Right. In the same way that the Apollo um, missions are a meme um, and, and DARPA, like DARPA for X, you know, like there was a lot of people wanted to create a DARPA for their particular area. Yeah. Um, in addition to the ones that exist already. And so I think it's so successful that it will become a meme in itself and really like most the average person was not predicting that you would get, uh, you know, multiple 90% plus effective vaccines in 2020. I mean, it's really just incredible before the end of the year, they're able to do it. Um, I think we could have gone faster. I'd love to talk later today about like all the ways we could have gone faster and done better. But in terms of expectations and consensus, um, some people were saying like, we'd never get a vaccine. And that was used as justification for like not doing lockdowns, right? Because if everyone's gonna get infected in the end, then like why lock down at all? Um, but actually turned out, yeah, we, it was a good idea to lock down because the vaccines were coming and they weren't like so far in the future. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a successful government project. Um, I'm excited for people to learn more about Operation Warp Speed, why it was successful. Um, and just a funny tidbit, I was reading an excerpt from a book about how vaccines were developed recently. And the main government leaders, when they were like developing how they would structure Operation Warp Speed, actually just copied the Manhattan Project. Really? In terms of having one person from the military be like the operations person, the general, the manager or whatever, and then having one person from the private sector, the scientific lead, because um, the guy they got was a former 
like biotech person. He had led like the most drugs through discovery um, nice. and through the FDA process for his biotech firm. And so like he was like a legend in the industry and he was a scientific lead. And that pairing of ops expertise and technical expertise is exact, exactly how they did it in the Manhattan Project. And so Jim I like Gross to think like, and, uh, was it Open, Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer? Yep, yep. And then and I love just like it's like memes all the way down because I think people are going to be citing Operation Warp Speed <laughs> here. But in a sense, they're also just citing the Manhattan Project. I think that's like just funny how history works in that way. I, I love that. It, it seems like an important aspect of Operation Warp Speed was this kind of almost, you know, we're going to create this new organization to solve this problem. It's like we're not going to use exit like the existing institutions. We're just going to spin up a new one. Is that a fair assessment of how it worked? I don't know enough about Operation Warp Speed. Yeah, yeah, I think, and and I'm still learning more about it myself because I think the research is the history and the research is being done as we speak. But from what I do know, another interesting factoid that is relative to what you just said is I learned recently that from someone who's inside government at the time and was privy to some of these meetings, they one simple but like apparently could be an important um, norm or practices that in most intergovernmental projects, when you get a meeting from people from different departments, you say like, hi, I'm Alex Stapp from HHS. Hi, I'm Alex Stapp from, you know, um, Department of Homeland Security or something, right? Like it's so all these different like agencies you say, like I'm from this representing my department. Yeah. But for Operation Warp Speed, everybody in the room said, hi, I'm Alex Stapp from Operation Warp Speed. Like they adopted that as their identifier. Cool. Like cool. they were full time on that for, for the for the duration of the project. And so it really allowed them to be like, we're this elite, you know, agile unit that like has a mission that we're here to solve instead of just like a temporary intergovernmental thing that could be bogged down. That's cool. That, that That's so cool. I, I'm glad we were able to, to do that. I, I, where else could we apply this kind of model, you know, where we like create, spin up new organizations to kind of attack unique problems? And, and is there something special about COVID that lent itself to, you know, you know, that approach, like the kind of immediacy of the problem? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, our best historical examples for accelerating innovation like this are often in crises. It's like war or pandemics. <laughs> yes. We seem to have the motivation to, to align incentives or to properly motivate people um, to go faster. But I'm not saying it's impossible um, in other scenarios, and I think it, it certainly could happen. Um, I think climate change is a similarly like uh, catastrophic, if not existential, threat to humanity, and so a lot of our elite class is already pretty focused on it. And so I think you could get yeah. some buy-in to do, um, you know, Operation Warp Speed type things for clean energy. And so under this Operation Warp Speed for X um, framework, the biggest thing you need able to do is to concretely define what what the outcome you're looking for is so you can reward someone with a government contract or um, a loan guarantee of some kind um, once they've achieved that goal and i think for clean energy that's, that's certainly possible so if you have you know just to take one random example geothermal energy one of the things we're trying to do with geothermal is learn how to dig to drill much deeper than we have in the past for oil and gas all right you could create um an operation warp speed for like drilling to a certain extreme depth right so we get more investment in different types of drill bits and materials technology um, for achieving that goal. And so that's something that the private sector might not necessarily do if it's not yet economical um, or commercializable. And you can use government purchasing power to incentivize like a radical challenge like that. In the same way that we did like, you know, the grand challenge for autonomous vehicles where they had races in the desert um, out in California to, to determine like who's gonna be the next like breakthrough in driverless technology. Um, these kind of like innovation prizes, advanced market commitments. I'm very bullish on these kind of demand side mechanisms from the government. I, I think they work really well. And I think it's it's a really cool model that's been pretty under underexplored. 
I, you know, politically, how would you describe yourself? I, you know, if you feel like, you know, just on first glance, kind of left libertarian, is that like a fair like assessment? Yeah, it's probably kind of fair. I mean, I, I've never used identified as a libertarian myself. Um, the last job I worked at the Progressive Policy Institute, they're known as like moderate center left Democrats. I probably feel that way, um, generally speaking. Uh, our, our think tank is, for the, for the record, nonpartisan. We think we can work with nice. people in either party um, who have good ideas. Um, right now, the Democrats uh, have unified control of government. So obviously, we find ourselves working more often with Democrats. But, um, you know, a bill we might talk about later today more is the Endless Frontier Act, now known as the United States Invasion Competition Act. You know, that was uh, co-sponsored by Todd Young, a Republican in the Senate, along with Chuck Schumer, right? And so um, there are still Republicans, especially in the Senate, who want to get things done on science, tech, and innovation, and we'd, we'd love to work with them. So, um, yeah, that's how I've kind of viewed myself. The Endless Frontiers Act. Can you talk about that? Frontier Act, excuse me. It's not plural. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. So, I mean, it's one, I think it's just to talk about politically first before we get to the substance. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's useful as a political example of what can get done still in Congress. I think people think of like DC these days, it's like gridlock. Can't do um, anything. Yeah. You can't do anything. It's mostly just a barrier to technology, um, too much regulation, et cetera. Um, but bipartisan things are possible with a certain framing and by staying under the radar, right? So maybe your audience is different, but the main, a mainstream audience would not have heard of the Endless Frontier Act or the United States Innovation Competition Act because it hasn't gotten that much mainstream press. It's not talked about on like the nightly political talk shows, right? Yeah. It's not on Tucker Carlson, it's not on Rachel Maddow. Um, and so because it was able to fly under the radar, it passed 6832 in the US Senate. Um, and it was sold to each side differently, right? It sold to Republicans as like, we're in a race with China, this is a national security question. How does the United States stand on the frontier of science and technology? For the Democrats, it was more sold as like, we need to trust the scientists. We need to fund the scientists. We need to fund universities. You guys love universities, right? Um, and so um, to borrow a term that Sam Hammond at the Niskanen Center likes to use a lot, this was a transpartisan bill where each side wanted to support the same thing for different reasons. It wasn't just like, let's compromise in the middle. It's let's support the same bill um, for different reasons. And so, you know, what is in the bill? Uh, a lot of money <laughs> in funding for scientists um, and universities. So. In total, the, the Senate version, um, as we were recording this, it still hasn't gone through the conference process. We don't know what the final bill will look like, but this is at least the Senate version um, included $250 billion um, to boost things like semiconductor production, scientific research, um, development of AI and space exploration. And all this is kind of built with a frame of like, how do we stay ahead of China economically, technologically and militarily? Um, and so, you know, We've been working behind the scenes and with our partners to add more experimentation and diversification to this bill. I think one of the good things it does currently is tries to spread the money throughout the country to institutions and regions that historically haven't gotten a lot of science funding. Um, the disproportionate amount goes to, you know, all the you know Ivy League schools in the Northeast. They have the best researchers and the, the best labs, and they do deserve a lot of money. But breakthroughs often come from places you don't expect, right? Or it comes from like thinking differently or a paradigm shift. Um, uh, you know, it's a very Coonian idea of like um, the structure of scientific revolutions, right? And so we should be really spreading our money out regionally um, across the country, looking for younger researchers as well. And there's some, some money for fellowships 
um, in this bill. Um, and so I think it, it does a good job on that, that end. Um, what we're trying to push for, and again, as we're recording this um, in late November, um, more experimentation, more pilot programs. So really that, that applying the scientific method to the funding of science itself. So the idea being like, for example, in New Zealand, um, they did a thing where for people, for scientists applying to government grants for funding, um, if they cl cleared a certain threshold of quality for the application, they were just thrown in a lottery and then by lottery were determined who gets the money, right? Wow. Instead of going through a much more detailed, bureaucratic, costly, time-intensive process, it's like, let's just do a lottery. And by saving scientists time, you might actually get better results. And the, the results from that pilot program in New Zealand were that the quality of study did not go down at all. It was about the same quality before and after. But you save scientists lots of time because it was just a lottery for determining a certain portion of, of grants that got funded. And so I'd love to see the U.S. and in the U.S. context, could we also do that to save scientists time on grant writing and, and managing grants? Um, and I'd like to see some pilot programs um, in the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act as well. Um, but yeah, the general themes there being diversification, experimentation, really focusing big bets on breakthrough research, trying to fund people rather than projects, um, the trust like high potential individuals to work on the most important things, which is often tough to do in a government context because no one wants to like fund something that blows up or right. Um, backfires, right? But nudging government to be a little more risk-seeking risk in funding the scientific process, I think would be a good idea. I, th I think that's a great idea. You know, Meta you know, the meta science question, science productivity over time since the seventies. You know, where do you come down on this? You know, do you think things have slowed down? Do you think they're going about the same pace? Um, you know, are we more effective? What do you think? Yeah, I think we've definitely slowed down. Um, I probably actually lean these days more towards it being a low hanging fruit problem, not necessarily just a bureaucratic. Yeah, it just gets harder uh, as you, um, you know push the frontier out further and further because the easiest um, wins in terms of scientific advancement have already taken place. Um, and so, you know, I, I've been talking a lot with Leopold Aschenbrenner recently, who's a young um, researcher uh, affiliated with at Oxford, um, as well as with the Foresight Institute, I believe in, in the Bay Area. But anyway, he's basically convinced me that, uh, you know, the number of scientists and researchers we have working on these problems matters the most because, um, for each double, I believe the fact the number is that for each doubling of scientific, you know, advancement, however you, you want to define that, takes eight x as many researchers as the previous doubling, oh, wow. right? And so, if you're if you're going up by eight x each time, like that, very very quickly gets to extremely large numbers. And the most important thing is just like throwing more scientists and researchers at at various problems. And so, um, then we can get into very deep abstract questions about like fertility rates and population right. growth and how do you move uh, more more smart people to frontier countries like the United States, which is why we can also love to talk about high-skilled immigration later, because that's also getting at this problem. Um, but yeah, for me, I think we are slowing down, but it's mostly because it's getting harder to make breakthroughs. And so therefore we need to be more aggressive in our policy response, in particular, how we allocate human capital. Human capital, uh, high-skilled immigration. You just yeah. mentioned it. How, you know, how do we score right now in the U.S.? Are we good, terrible, somewhere in between? I would say good, but mostly through sheer inertia or <laughs> momentum. Like we are, if anything, like shooting ourselves in the foot, but still winning the race. You know what I mean? Like, like, but we need to stop doing that um, because you know, historically, uh, post World War II and during World War II, um, 
with a lot of um, Jewish scientists um, that migrated to the United States, we were able to reach the frontier and be, you know, the scientific, the global scientific leader for the last 70 or so years. Um, but we haven't been proactive in trying to identify the, the highest potential people in the world, especially young people, to come to the United States. We mostly just hope that by being the richest country in the world, they'll want to come here. And that's been true in the past. But, you know, we just had four years of Trump administration, COVID, um, also limited uh, international migration significantly, especially to our universities. And so there's been this, this disruption point. And if we don't like actively try to restart those immigrant flows, they might not ever come back. And so we have to be really proactive in, in our policies here. Um, and so just one example of a policy, again, as we're recording this, um, in the Build Back Better bill, the reconciliation bill that's um, currently in the late stages of negotiation in Congress, in the current version, um, there are some key provisions related to high-skilled immigration that could be hugely beneficial to the United States. Um, so one being that uh, an ability to recapture green cards that have been lost before. So in most years, the government doesn't actually give out um, all the green cards that oh, have been wow. authorized for that year. And then they're just lost. Like you can't Jesus. just use them the next year. It's crazy, right? And so I believe the number is since 1994, we've, there have been 400,000 green cards that have been unused. Um, and we've done previous in, in, in past decades recaptures of green cards. So this is a normal process that once every couple of decades, you just kind of like, you know, tally up all the green cards you didn't use and then reissue them or not reissue, but, you know, actually use them for the first time. And so that would be a great provision. That's 400,000 more people with permanent residency and the ability to, you know, change employers um, or just have more autonomy inside the United States. Um, and then the second key provision in the bill, which is the more important one, is an uncapped high opportunity for high-skilled immigrants. Um, so basically, you'll be exempted from the green card limit if you've been wait if you've been in the U.S. for more than two years and you've been waiting for your green card for more than two years, and you pay five thousand dollars for an employment-based green card or twenty-five hundred dollars for a family-based green card. Um, and so that allows you to kind of skip to the front of the line and exceed, in particular, the per-country limits on green cards that are hugely constraining for immigrants from India or China. People, immigrants from those countries often wait decades in the United States um, for permanent residency status. And so these are the kind of people, you know, high-skilled immigrants that um, both Republicans and Democrats say they want in the country. Um, and they'll be paying a fee, you know, to use more resources at USCIS um, to process these, these visas. And so I think it's an absolute win-win-win, um, you know, for everybody. And, and, and hopefully, as a recording, I hope it stays in the bill um, and passes as part of reconciliation. You know, immigration is is this thing that it's like these trigger issues, right? Um, do you? And we were just talking about the uh, the Frontier Act, Act, excuse me, Endless Frontier Act, Frontier. Lord, losing it. <laughs> um, Act um, that kind of flew under the radar, right? Are there any ways that you can think about structuring like immigration bills and things like that 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 allow it to kind of avoid the you know you know Carlson Maddow moment for you know any given thing that would be good for us. As a yeah, that's definitely uh, the right way to think about it is to, how do you avoid that moment? To borrow a term from Matt Iglesias, it's that how do you do secret Congress, right. um, keeping it out of the headlines. Our philosophy at the Institute for Progress, our new think tank that we're launching, is that there's kind of a sweet spot for attention. Uh, you can't just say nothing, right? Because then it'd be like, why, what are we all doing here? Like, why am I even right. talking about it right now if like you don't want any attention for it? Um, you need to talk about it somewhat because you need to raise the salience for staffers who are actually writing these bills. We're trying to like, you know, nudge their bosses, the actual 
um, legislators um, or people in the White House to actually care about this provision or, or keep it during negotiations. So you need to raise the salience enough so that they know it's important and it's good policy, but not too much, again, where like the cable news shows take over and then it's just rabid partisanship. So on immigration, here's how we think about immigration. One, and the reconciliation bill, because it's already purely partisan, right? Like there's no expectation that the, right. this will get any Republican votes. They're gonna get, if it passes, if they're able to do it, it'll get 50 votes in the Senate, um, 51 plus Kamala Harris, um, and it'll be a narrow win in the House as well. And so we're not as concerned about activating partisanship on this. Um, what we mostly want to do is let Democrats know that this is a win, both for family-based reunification and for employment-based. So if you care more about the economic aspects of this, it's clearly a win, like we've already talked about, the, the importance of getting the best human capital in the United States um, to grow the economy and grow business and entrepreneurship and, and you know, having more scientists. Um, but also, if you just more care about the families, family reunification, this also starts clearing the backlogs for families as well. And so it's really a win-win that the entire Democratic coalition, um, everybody who cares about immigration on the center left, should be able to support these provisions in the bill. And so messaging that, talking about that, we're less, um, I think, less risk factors for this bill than for something like the Inland Frontier Act, where you really do want to have a big bipartisan one. You need to get 60 votes in the Senate, so you have to have Republicans on board. And so then you really do want to just keep it lower profile and make sure you have the right message uh, for each side. And then the last thing I'll say on immigration is that our goal is we support immigration of all uh, skill levels, um, but our long run goal is to maximize the long run sustainable rate of immigration, right? So that is really a political economy question. It's how do you maintain the American public's support for immigration? Again, we just had four years of Trump where he was had Stephen Miller doing everything he could to ratchet down both legal and illegal immigration. Um, and so we need to prevent backlashes like that. And so kind of our current opinion is that that involves doing things like increasing funding for border security on the Southern border, um, some externalization of, um, of processing for, for immigrants and refugees, um, and then increasing the legal pathways, especially high-skilled pathways, because if you look at public polling, the vast majority of Americans, 70% plus, support high-skilled immigration. And then over time, you build trust and you build and you increase those flows and people more accustomed to high-skilled immigration. And then you can get something like Canada or Australia, where they have higher rates of immigration in terms of the foreign-born population is much higher, but they have a skills-based, you know, point-based system um, that the country feels more comfortable with. And it's more of a controlled fashion. And so that's kind of our philosophy on immigration. I think it's, it's a very good philosophy. I have a mechanical, this is like a mechanical question, I guess is how I describe it. This is not on the outline, so I'm sorry, but I, I'm so curious. Yeah. Um, how does it, you know, how does the kind of, you know, think tank to staffer to, you know, senator, congressman to law, tr like, like, what is the actual process of that look like? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. It can happen a lot of different ways. Um, so maybe I'll just, let's see, I'll, I'll pick. A couple. Um, so to start with one. Um, this is kind of rare, but it's huge when it happens. And you know, I'll, I'll take this example. Like the Center for American Progress is probably the most establishment center-left, like Democratic think tank in D.C. for at least the last few years, if not the last like decade. And when presidential candidates, you know, run for office when they were running for president, um, they have to build a campaign platform. And so oftentimes, the people who join their campaign come from think tanks. Um, like the Center for American Progress. And then when they're like putting out the, the policy platform, they put out their own policy white papers. Oftentimes those are just like very 
lightly adapted from white papers that the think tank they worked at put out, right? So that, that sneaks its way into the presidential um, campaign platform. Then if your candidate wins, they're now elected to office with promises to the public of like, we will do this thing on childcare, right? Um, for childcare stuff, we're gonna make childcare cheaper for the average American family, but also raise the wages of people who work in childcare, right? That was, that's, that's the one I'm thinking of in terms of a, a Center for American Progress um, policy proposal. And so like the, the new president has committed to that publicly. They're gonna work with their allies in Congress if they have you know, a democratically controlled Congress to deliver on that. And then it's a lot of behind the scenes like horse trading. Um, if you're still at the think tank level, you're in the office trying to explain why um, you know, childcare subsidies are more important than new spending on science or something. There's if you're funding in science for the bill. And so it's a lot of this like behind the scenes negotiation. Um, and an important thing in DC these days to understand for your listeners is that there are only a few few bites at the apple each year in terms of legislation that actually passes. Got it. Um, like everything is kind of bundled. I mean, <laughs> as we're talking this like mess of a reconciliation process, like why it's a hodgepodge of like dozens of different policy priorities. It's not just one. Um, it's because standalone bills don't really pass anymore. Like it has right. to be as part of this must pass legislation. What, are, what is must pass legislation? It's like the, um, the annual appropriations bill. It's the defense reauthorization act. We obviously have to fund the military. Um, so you try to like sneak your thing into one of these pieces of must pass, must pass legislation. And so this year, um, obviously reconciliation, the Democrats view that almost as must pass legislation. Like you know that your best shot for getting your thing in, in made into law is to include it in reconciliation um, this year at least. And so that's a lot of what happens is like, it's the horse trading and slipping things into must pass legislation. Got it. And it is, are the staffers primarily the ones who actually end up writing the laws? Do they, am I yeah, correct so, in assuming that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's primarily in terms of actual drafting, it's the committee, the key committees. Um, it's not even just individual um, House or Senate offices. It's the key committees in the House or Senate that are collaborating often. And so, um, leadership will obviously set priorities and say like at a high level what we're trying to do here. Um, but at the end of the day, the staff are the ones with the technical expertise to actually draft provisions. Um, and then when you get into the details, that's when you can have more influence, right? Because um, you can act as, this is another term of art, is like a legislative subsidy. These, these staffers, they're really underpaid, under-resourced, they yeah. need help. Um, and there's two ways to view this, right? If you're a bad actor in the system, a lobbyist for... <laughs> I don't know, oil and gas or something, right? You can use that to your advantage to like um, insert yourself into that process. Yeah. But another term for lobbying is advocacy, right? And so I view myself as an advocate for what I think is like the most important public policy, getting more immigration, um, you know, uh, preventing the next pandemic, biosecurity um, and meta science. Like how do we do science better? I'm an advocate for those things. And so I equally want to provide my expertise to the underpaid, under-resourced right. congressional staffer who's actually doing the drafting. Um, right. And so you can be a help and an aid to them. And I think part of maybe what people don't understand about DC is like the way you get things done more often is like to help them achieve their goals and show them how you're Got aligned. It. Like you very rarely can just like step into a new scenario and be like, I have this crazy new idea that's like totally different than what you guys are working on or talking about. You have to like be on the same page with them of being like, hey, I know you already want to do this thing in terms of, you know, beating China, staying ahead yeah. of China in science and technology. Well, I'm going to give you a tool to help make that happen um and if and if you're you know rowing in the same direction as that staffer you're much more likely to succeed in actually making a change it can actually work that makes it yeah. that makes a ton of sense macroeconomic policy you know 
what do you guys think about that? And where should we be going? What should the Fed be doing, et cetera? Yeah, this is another key one I think that's been really important. As we're talking, this is like <laughs> the news today was that in four days, um, President Biden will nominate his his next nominee to the Federal Reserve. Um, the talk in D.C. is either he's going to renominate Jerome Powell, who's the current chair of the Federal Reserve, um, or Lael Brainerd, who is another governor um, on the Federal Reserve Board um, and is a Democrat. And for your audience, and Jerome Powell is a Republican previously nominated for the first time by Trump. And so when this comes out, people will know what the result was. But the key background context on macroeconomic policy uh, and monetary policy in particular for this for this conversation is that inflation has been above target for um, a number of months now. Uh, the latest reading as of recording was uh, above 6% annual um, CPI uh, inflation. And so the Federal Reserve's target, uh, its average target over time is 2%. That's, that's significantly, I believe 6% was the highest reading in 30 years. And so there's a huge debate right now, which is like, should the Federal Reserve raise interest rates to kind of cool off the economy, right? Raise the price of money um, and to try to lower and fight inflation more effectively? Or would that preemptively slow down the recovery, right? So we're still a decent bit below um, the employment rate that was prevailing before the COVID crisis. And so would that choke off a labor market recovery if you were to raise interest rates prematurely? And so our view on this um, as a think tank is that, uh, you know, post Great Recession, we had insufficient aggregate demand for a decade. And that's why it was such a slow grinding recovery. Um, Post-COVID, with the CARES Act, you know, the American Rescue Plan, we had massive fiscal fiscal stimulus, massive, massive monetary policy support in terms of loans to private companies, as well as obviously zero interest rate policy. Um, and we've actually had a rapid recovery so far. And, you know, our belief is that the inflation is transitory. It's mostly due to supply chain bottlenecks that hopefully by this recording will have, by the way, when this is released, um, have eased a bit and we believe they will in 2022. Um, and so prematurely raising interest rates would probably do more harm than good. But people are, it's fair for people to be concerned. Inflation per se is not a good thing. 6% is definitely too high, um, but it's the, about the trade-offs between unemployment and inflation that people are talking about a lot. And that's why the nomination process is so controversial. Um, the camps feel very strongly about whether it should be, you know, another term of Jerome Powell or Lael Brainerd, who would be seen as like on team Democrat in a way that some people think Jerome Powell isn't, but I would argue is uh, incorrect. Do you think Jay Powell is pretty not like, what's your analysis? Is he pretty nonpartisan? He feels kind of nonpartisan to me. It's tough to yeah. tell all these things, but. Yeah, he definitely has more of that feel. Um, just I'll try to give a, a brief history, but it's like he's a Republican, but it's kind of like he's not definitely not a Trump style Republican. And he's definitely not an extreme conservative or anything or a, a heart in terms of monetary policy. You think of like hard money, like gold standard type yeah. people or people who just like like higher interest rates and would definitely, you know, if inflation ever exceeded 2%, they would freak out. He's yeah. definitely not that style of, of Republican, hence why he's kept, you know, low interest rates, even as inflation has gone above target here. Um, and yeah, he kind of just uh, fell into the position where uh, during the Obama administration, Senate Republicans were blocking some of Obama's Federal Reserve nominees. And so as a token of compromise, Obama paired a Republican and Democratic nominee together. And Jerome Powell was that Republican because he was viewed as very moderate and reasonable, right? And so then when Trump comes into office, he is, has the choice of replacing J Janet Yellen or nominating his own person. Of course, Trump is the kind of guy who's like, I want my own man in that position. 
Uh, I'll pick my own person. And then a lot of Republicans, like the conservative mainstream Republicans were like, we should pick you know, a conservative monetary policy person, um, someone like John Taylor, for example. Um, but Trump's advisors and Trump himself as a real estate developer, he likes low interest rates. He's like, all he, it's all intuitive for him, but he's like, I know when I was in real estate, the interest rates were low, I did better. And so like, I probably don't want higher interest rates. I want somebody who likes looser, dovish monetary policy. And so they kind of just looked around and, you know, he's being advised by Steve Mnuchin and Gary Cohn, um, like the New York finance guys. And they're like, yeah, we agree with you. Like a hard money chairman of the Federal Reserve would like probably end your presidency because we'd like maybe start spark a recession. And so just looking around, they're like, who's a dovish Republican? with Federal Reserve experience, it's Jerome Powell. And that's how he got picked. And, and the final part of that story is that there was reporting that Trump said like he picked Jerome Powell because he looked like what a central bank head looks like on TV. He's like this like gray haired, old white guy, wears nice suits. And like, that's how Trump thinks is like, who looks good on TV? Um, and in my opinion, we really, we really lucked out. He's been great so far, um, even with the temporary above target inflation. Um, and so, as of this, when this comes out, you'll know, but I hope, I hope he gets renominated. Lel Brainer will also be uh, excellent, but um, our position was that we'd, we'd love to see uh, another term for Jerome Powell. That's cool. Climate tech, climate change, you know, what do you guys think about their carbon taxes, you know, capturing carbon? What's the, what's the best approach? Yes, I think um, both Caleb Watney, my co-founder for this new think tank, the Institute for Progress, both of the economics backgrounds, both did the master's program at George Mason University. And so as good economists, of course, we know that the ideal solution is a carbon tax, right? Um, carbon and pollution, climate change, these are negative externalities that private firms don't currently have to internalize. They don't have to bear the costs of the, the pollution uh, that they're creating. So a great way to make them internalize that would be to charge them a carbon tax to measure how much carbon they're releasing. Um, but the problem, this is where we get into the political economy where, as the DC policy people, carbon taxes pull horrendously. Um, if you ask any Americans, this is true mostly worldwide actually, but if we'll just talk in the American context, um, how much are you willing to pay per month in terms of like higher electricity bills or something um, to mitigate the effects of climate change? This has been done in multiple contexts, but like the average number is like, even if you ask, if you ask someone like $10 a month, it's like 50-50. If you ask someone like $20 a month, it's like 65, 35 against, like people are just like, and again, and a significant carbon tax in effect would be much more than like 20. This is like not even in the ballpark of like what the average consumer would have to bear under a carbon tax. And so the average American is just not willing to suffer direct material harms or costs um, to fight climate change. So that's like, that's the political reality you need to deal with. Um, and in many cases in the US and around the world, when you know the elites have successfully brokered a deal to impose a carbon tax, it's been repealed, you know, by a populist candidate um, soon thereafter. So they're not even they're not politically durable when you are able to be successful. And so we're skeptical or bearish on carbon taxes as this, you know, the political solution to this problem, and much more optimistic about subsidies for clean tech. Right. So you can get the problem another. It's the second best solution, but it's a pretty good one. Um, and so we'd love to see a lot more subsidies. And you know, clearing out regulatory um, obstacles for things like nuclear, geothermal, carbon capture and storage, um, and long duration batteries. And why those four areas? Because the key problem with switching from fossil fuels to clean energy, at least currently, is that you need a firm baseload clean energy, which we currently don't have, right? 
that's currently mostly done by coal and natural gas. Um, and wind and solar are variable, they're intermittent. So like when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing, you, you don't get much solar or wind, right? Um, and batteries are not currently economically efficient to store energy from solar and wind. And so one option, like I mentioned, is more investment in long duration batteries that are economical for baseload energy storage. Um, or we could just stick with things like, probably not, probably not coal at all, but like natural gas, for example, um, for baseload energy and for certain kinds of like uh, heavy industry that are much harder to switch away from. And then you just capture the carbon that, the, that um, natural gas produces and you store it. Um, and there are various uh, methods for doing that that are not currently economical, but with more government purchases could become more economical over time. And then, of course, I think I've listened to a couple of your podcasts recently. I think you've talked a Thanks. bit about at least, at least geothermal, maybe yeah. nuclear as well. Um, and so your listeners have some good background on that. But um, nuclear and geothermal, clean baseload energy, you know, done right could solve all of our, our energy needs. Um, so those four candidates for how do we get clean firm baseload energy, I think are, are very exciting and, we're, and worth investments in by the public sector. Those are really good, really good solutions. Um, this is a left-hand turn a little bit, but yeah. what is common knowledge among tech policy people that would be surprising just to lay people? Yeah, I think this one, I don't work on this area a ton, but it's the one that I think about a lot, which is like in the telecom space, um, a very common thing you see bipartisan support for in DC, which you don't see on any other issue is like, closing the digital divide. Like how do we bring broadband to rural America? Because it's like really hard to be against this, right? Like who's like, I don't yeah. want to get high-speed internet to people who live in rural areas. Like everyone's for that, obviously. Um, but the thing that in my experience working in tech policy is that everybody who works in this area knows that the evidence is that actually it's as much, if not more, a demand problem than a supply problem. Meaning like really? the people who live in rural areas don't, when they, when they have access to the internet, don't want to use it. Like they'll tell you on surveys, like they have no interest in the internet uh, as a thing. Like they're just like, I live like part of it. It's like why I chose to live way out here is because I don't like things like the internet. Right. Right. Um, often they're much older. So the elderly population just in general, obviously uses less technology. And so then the question becomes like, okay, so how important is this? Most people would still say it's important, but your solution needs to change. Right. It's like, then it becomes much more about education and outreach and like, showing people useful things to do with the internet, which is a much harder problem to solve. Like we don't have great evidence on like which education programs work or like how you actually change these things. Right. And then on the supply side, it's also a really hard problem because the solution in cities and suburbs is to like lay fiber, like lay, lay fiber off the cable and you yeah. get really fast internet to a lot of people. But when houses are super spread apart, like they are in rural America, it's not economical at all to lay fiber. Right. Um, and so, and the infrastructure bill that just passed um, recently, there's a lot of money for closing the digital divide. Um, I'm worried a lot of it will be wasted because again, it's so expensive to connect each new house and I haven't yet seen a credible plan for how to do so. And the last thing I'll say is that uh, it's almost a shame because I think if we did it five years from now, satellite networks like Starlink from SpaceX um, could well probably, enough. could yeah, would work well enough. It would have been in the market. Like they've already like, they're already available in some places. Um, and I've seen test data showing that like they have pretty good download speeds, but for, for DC policymakers to trust, like handing a company like SpaceX, that's creating Starlink, like tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in federal subsidies, they want a longer track record of like knowing this right. stuff works. Right. And so it's just a shame that I think it's just the timing was like this, I think where like, if it was five years from now and there were 
thousands of satellites um, up there doing these like satellite um, broadband networks and they've been really proven out, then the argument would be just like, yeah, that's the only obvious solution for rural and, and ex-urban America is just like get, um, uh, you know, the, the, trend, the device from SpaceX and just do it locally and don't lay fiber at all. Yeah, that, that that makes a ton of sense and it, it, it would work very well, but it's just not nobody wants to commit to it yet because it's uh, you know, what if it goes exactly. wrong, right? Yeah, uh, bad timing. Yeah, bad timing. You know, what emerging technologies are you most excited about? We've talked about a couple of them so far, but what else? Yeah, I think just to expand a little bit on, I mean, I've been I'm new to the climate space and I'm definitely not like a technical expert by any means, but I'm thinking about them from a policy perspective. So like. Because geothermal and nuclear are two of the candidates that really fit this, like, what can we do for clean baseload energy? I'm thinking more a lot about like how we accelerate those technologies from a regulatory perspective. Um, so for geothermal, I've been thinking about for enhanced uh, or advanced like next generation geothermal um, to justify investments in that technology. You need to make sure that companies know that like they'll be able to drill um, and not face too many. Uh, regulatory hurdles. So what I'm thinking of here is that shallow heat resources in the United States, if you, look, if you look at a map of like federally owned land in the United States and a map of like shallow heat resources, it would be um, amenable for geothermal drilling. Uh, it's like the same map, right? It's like yeah. the American West and a few pockets on like the East Coast, but it's like mostly the American West. Um, and so currently oil and gas companies have a NEPA exemption, NEPA being uh, the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, they have an exemption for drilling on federal land. And they also have an expedited permitting office where like they just go and like get the permit really quickly. Um, and so we should just treat geothermal like oil and gas, right? Um, it's clean. So there's like, you, you, there's an argument that it's even more in the social interest to allow geothermal drilling uh, on federal land. Uh, and it's also like, there's a great political economy story to tell here. One, how do we transition workers out of oil and gas? Well, if we can use their human capital and some of their physical capital, even in terms of machines and drilling techniques and tools, um, let's move them into geothermal as an industry. Uh, and then the other part of this political economy story is that two prominent places in the United States with shallow heat resources are Utah and actually West Virginia. And I think we That's should cool. like build out labs to do research there on geothermal and yeah. name them like the Senator Mansion Lab, you know, the Joe <laughs> Mansion <laughs> geothermal lab and the Mitt Romney like geothermal lab and 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 because there's already one in West Virginia so just throw that throw that thing way more money and build one in Utah as well um but yeah so like there's the the job story is great obviously the clean energy story is great the in terms of the senate map and swing votes in the senate it's excellent so um optimistic on geothermal and then really briefly on on nuclear I think a lesson <clears throat> I've learned looking at construction productivity over time and cost trends in nuclear as well is that we're really bad at doing on-site like large-scale uh, construction. So whenever it's like has to be a one-off thing, whether it's like a single-family home or like uh, you know a light water uh, Gen two nuclear power plant, yeah. um, you should like, start from scratch every time. So it doesn't allow like standardization, automation, learning by doing all these loops that like decrease costs over time. You don't get to unlock any of them. And that's why we've seen the cost to build a nuclear power plant actually up. increase. It's been increasing, right? There's a regulate. There's a regulate regulation story, obviously. But also just like, if you if it's not in a factory, you're likely not going to get massive cost savings over time. Like like we're seeing with solar. Solar been dropping exponentially. 
Um, and so like the question for me in nuclear is like, how do you move it into a factory? And that's why I'm excited about like light water, small module reactors. Um, and that's, we just, that company just signed a contract, a US company to do the testing in Romania. I think because again, like the political economy thing of like people are nervous about nuclear in the US. So they're doing the testing in Romania, but I'm optimistic that like, by do making it small, modular and modular, yeah. you can like get this learning by doing an economies of scale thing going um, and you can place them, um, you know, in more distributed fashion around the world. Uh, so, you know, the nuclear regulatory commission is bad in a lot of ways. I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but if nuclear happens, it's going to be in this small modular way, not by figuring out how to do massive on-site construction of nuclear power plants like we have historically. That, like, that ship has kind of sailed. And so I love nuclear as an idea. I'm optimistic, but it definitely needs like a paradigm shift. Like we're not just going to like restart what we were doing in the 60s and 70s. Do you, what solutions do you see towards, you know, moving people towards nu nuclear just, just from the optics perspective, right? And is it something that will just kind of correct itself as the people that were live during Chernobyl and Three Mile Island kind of, you know, die off for lack of a better term? <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely a, a cohort or like generational effect. I think that's definitely true. I was very disappointed. I, I loved the Chernobyl miniseries on HBO as yeah. an form of art it was very well done but then you read like the fact checks on it and you're like oh, it's yeah. definitely there's an element of fear-mongering or just like um catastrophizing about yeah. how bad Chernobyl was and so I'm worried that like that set back our generation a lot from people who um weren't alive when it happened um but in general uh anyone who spends time on Twitter will, will realize that there's a very strong like pro-nuclear yeah, uh, uh community and I think they're actually making progress. I mean, it's hard to like attribute it causally to those people, but like, I think both online and offline, there's a growing group of pe community of people who realize like without nuclear transitioning, it's making tough. a clean energy transition is much harder, right? It's much harder to just use renewables. And so in particular, we're seeing countries in the, in the European Union and elsewhere who have, you know, these ambitious like um, zero carbon uh, goals by 2050. So like, they're like running the numbers and they're like, oh shit, like we're never going to achieve this if we don't like have nuclear as part of the equation. Um, and I think that's why you're seeing um, France uh, re uh, making plans to announce new uh, nuclear power plants for the first time in decades. You're seeing Japan restart its nuclear power plants um, that it turned off after Fukushima. You're seeing the UK announcing um, investment from Rolls-Royce in dozens of small modular reactors. Um, and so you're seeing this resurgence because people are running the numbers and being like, we're not gonna be able to do this. And then you have a grassroots community who also see this and are like memeing it into reality on Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, and again, I'm not sure how real it is, but it feels real to me. And I, in public polling I've seen recently um, that I posted uh, from The Economist and I think YouGov did the poll, uh, been a, a dramatic increase in support Republicans, a majority of Republicans already supported nuclear in recent years. And then just in the last three years alone, there's been a 20 point swing in Democratic support. So now a majority of Democrats also support nuclear. It's not huge margins. It's like slightly above 50% in both parties, maybe up to 60%. Um, but it's more positive than it has been in the past. And I'm optimistic you could use some of that uh, momentum in the future. It's heading in the right direction then, which is good. Which is good. Yeah. Are you down for a round of overrated, underrated? Let's do it. All right. Overrated or underrated? GMU Econ. 
extremely underrated. <laughs> I'm obviously biased because I attended GMUEcon, um, but I'll try to do a, a good sales pitch for GMUEcon. I am from Arizona uh, originally. I went to the University of Arizona for undergrad, a good public university, but not an elite institution by any means, like how people in, in DC think of elite institutions. Right. Um, and I knew I wanted to work in econ in some capacity when I was an undergrad. I wanted initially to do the PhD, but I decided like academia wasn't for me and I wanted more policy impact. So I did, I did a startup out of college for four years just to like have something to do. Um, but eventually I was like, you know, I need to go to DC. I need to get into DC. Yeah, How do I do it? And I had no personal or professional network. None of my friends, you know, worked in DC or worked in politics or policy. I had absolutely no entry point whatsoever. I also knew that if I did a master's, I didn't want to pay, I don't want to go into debt for a master's. Right. I think for your audience, <laughs> I'll just say a, a blanket recommendation. Don't take on <laughs> debt for a master's in most cases. Few hard bad. rules, but I feel like that's a hard rule. <laughs> yeah. And so when you do research, you realize like, oh, one of the only fully funded master's programs in the United States is at George Mason. If you do the fellowship program, which, which I did and a lot of my colleagues in DC have done. And it wasn't just the money. Also, it's like I've been reading economics blogs for years. And anyone who read the blogosphere in the late 2000s, early 2010s yeah. knows that a weirdly disproportionate number of the best blogs, like objectively, most people would say the best blogs were from GMU econ professors. It's like you're not reading Harvard professors, you're not reading Princeton professors or Yale professors. You're reading mostly GMU professors like Tyler Cowan, Alex Tabarrok, Robin Hansen, Brian Kaplan, Garrett Jones, like all these great econ people doing active blogging and, and stuff on Twitter. So I was like, I want to go to the place where they work and like teach and, um, and it, it being fully funded was a nice bonus. And so, um, and lastly, I'll say, if you do the fellowship, you get to be a research assistant at the Mercatus Center as well. So if you want to do policy, you want to get into think tanks, you want to have a good network, um, you can go to GMU and it has kind of a libertarian reputation, but like I said, I've, I've never identified as libertarian. They're open-minded. I think you get a good education either way. Um, and it's a great entry point for people who don't come from traditional elite networks, like breaking a DC policy. And I, and I had a great experience there. Well, what do you owe their kind of outsize, uh, I guess, impact to? Like you mentioned like the blogosphere. I remember, you know, when I was in college, Don Boudreaux, Boudreaux came down and met with, um, it was actually like a community college meetup and, you know, he was coming through and he just stopped. And I was at UNC, but we all got to go meet him and stuff. It, it was super cool um, mm -hmm. how how receptive they were just to everyone, which I don't feel like is super common. I don't know. I yeah, I think they're really, they're really receptive. I mean, I think probably two factors. One, the most important factor is like, it really is Tyler Cowen being like the shelling point. Gotcha. Um, and and act, not even just like a passive shelling point, but also an active recruiter of talent. And so he has amazing talent spotting ability to bring other faculty there um, and to build up both GMU and the Mercatus Center. Um, and he's done that over decades. And so just like, it's this, it's this cumulative process that keeps building on itself. And so I think Tyler deserves the majority of the credit for what the GMU econ department has become. And then uh, the second thing is like, it's almost a weird, um, trying to think like, like the internet disrupted not just like private companies, but like also universities, right? So like, yeah. if you think of the internet as a disruptive technology, the incumbents who are winning under the pre-internet paradigm have no incentive to like go all in on the internet, right? They're already winning right. under the previous rules of the game. So like, if you're a econ professor at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you know, name all the Ivies or whatever, like you don't need the internet to get distribution. You don't need the internet to get an audience. Like you're already getting published in all the top journals. So you feel like you're winning the game. Like why spend your time on econ blogs? And I think 
lower tier universities like GMU, like if you're a professor there, it's like, this is an exciting technology that like will allow me to like reach new audiences. And like, why not, instead of like publishing in, you know, lower tier academic journals, like publish that no one reads, like publish in on the internet and grow your own audience. And so I think there was like an asymmetric um, opportunity there that GMU under Tyler Cowen's leadership, like uniquely took advantage of. That's cool. I think that's a, that's probably exactly what happened. Um, GDPR, overrated or underrated? Extremely overrated. Uh, when, back when I used to work more on, on privacy regulation, GDPR was the bane of my existence because it sounded like a good thing. Like, yeah. you know, who's everyone's in favor of more privacy. And so then therefore people are in favor of like, let's protect our privacy with good regulation. I would also be in favor of that if it were effective, but GDPR had actually no substance. This is this, for those who don't know in the audience, this is um, the EU's uh, comprehensive um, privacy and data protection regulation that's passed a few years ago. And, you know, it's, it's fundamentally broken because it still operates under this like notice and opt-in model where like they think the solution is to just like spam the user with tons of, require companies to spam the user with tons of information and get their consent to opt in to whatever privacy and data um, practices the company is engaged in. So this is why like they, they unilaterally broke the internet um, in terms of like, why does every website you go to constantly spam you with a cookie consent pop-up, right? Being like, yeah. do you accept all cookies? Like that's GDPR. And if you've ever traveled in Europe recently, it's even worse in the, in the EU than it is in the US because obviously every single company in the, US, in the EU has to do it. And only the big companies in the US comply with GDPR. Um, but yeah, it's, it's terrible. Like what is, do I feel safer? My, is my privacy more protective now that I've clicked, I accept cookies? Like, no, um, not really, th- not really at all. And like the law itself has been only sporadically enforced, um, as you can imagine. And, and it's in a way it's a, a, a moat for the biggest companies because who can afford to comply with this like complex, um, law it's the Googles and Facebook because they have right. the teams of lawyers and engineers to do so. And so. I'll just note that like Facebook and Google are not opposed to GDPR. They are often in, in support of it and other privacy regulations. And so um, I think it's just, yeah, it's it's misleading. And obviously I support, that'd be another podcast, but like what ideal privacy regulations are. Um, there's, there is a path forward on that, but it's not GDPR. Got it, got it. It does seem quite anti-competitive at some level. You know, you yeah. can keep out new entrants. Um, well, Alec, I've got one more big question for you. Um, this just, you know, came up, you know, just talking to you. Um, I talked to a lot of people about, you know, progress studies related things, what's gone wrong since 1971. I think we've done like 70 of these so far. Uh, you know, I think you're, you've been the most optimistic person, which is really cool because you're working directly with policy. You know, (laughs) can you like just pitch me on optimism and, and like solving a lot of the problems we, we have today? Well, first I'll, I'll under pitch you and then I'll, I'll try to actually tell you. What I'll say is like maybe it's like an adaptive. It's like so you're maybe you're just getting a selection effect here. Right. Where like I have to be optimistic, right? To like pound the pavement every day in DC, right and enough. like you often feel like you're like ramming your head against the wall like over and over before you break through, right? So um, maybe that's why I've had some moderate success in DC is like having that optimistic mindset of believing like better things are possible and you can get wins and focusing on the positive, right? So like yeah, so much this year in DC has gone terribly wrong like uh they finally passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill which i think on net was positive but it had a lot of bad things in it and a lot of good things and like it was a whole mess to get it across the finish line so in that whole process you could be negative and pessimistic and just be like how is this this legislative process is so broken 
the final version was worse than the original version. So you could say like, it got, you know, the, the sausage making process of Congress like is like not working or something. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think it's on net a good bill shows Congress can still do things. Um, and the reconciliation bill, again, as of this reporting, not yet passed, but especially if it includes those immigration provisions we discussed, would be hugely beneficial to the United States economy um, in the long run. And But it's been an absolute nightmare to follow. No one in the American public can follow it. I can barely follow it. And it's like my, my full-time job to, to know like the ins and outs of the rules of reconciliation and what various democratic factions want out of the, the Build Back Better bill. Um, so it looks really bad from the outside, but the most important thing, and here's, I'll make the pitch using effective altruist lens, nice. which is just think in terms of expected value, right? So the US government controls trillions of dollars in direct spending. The US government promulgates regulations that affect the entire economy. Um, you know, I think the, I want to say that the last time I checked, the US economy is like roughly $20 trillion around there. Yeah. Um, and so what happens in DC matters immensely. And even if you're not optimistic about like DC doing good things, you can make them like way less bad. Like you being in the room, yeah. whether you work in a think tank and you're like, you know, me having meetings with policymakers, or especially if you are a staffer on Capitol Hill or in the White House or at a regulatory agency, like you being in the room to stop bad things from happening matters a ton. Um, and then you have, you have rare, but sometimes opportunities to do really good things as well. Um, and so I think this, and this is back to what I said earlier about policy, uh, tech people underrating the importance of policy for tech goals and vice versa. Tech people can't ignore what happens in DC. Like a lot of my friends who work in Silicon Valley think that they're just like routing around uh, public policy and regulation. And that's what we saw with software, right? Like yeah. the internet economy was huge and it's very lightly regulated compared to like physical infrastructure and the economy of atoms relative to bits, right? The whole Peter Thiel thing. Um, but we've kind of reached the limits of what you can do with just software. Um, or at least we're seeing diminishing returns, I would say. Maybe not the limits, but diminishing returns. And so we need innovation in the real world. And to get innovation in the real world, you need to get policy right. And so that's my pitch for people to like engage and think about DC and, and not just brush it aside. And that's why I'm excited to work on it every day. Well, I like that. That that is a super message, and I I really appreciate you coming on. Um, we'll have to we'll have you ba have you back on uh, in a little bit after you get things really going and, and talk about how things are going. Um, but where can people find you? Where should we send them? Yeah, so um, uh, the domain for our website is probably it's still being determined as it's recording. So just search the Institute for Progress. You'll find us on the internet. Um, my Twitter handle is just my name, Alex Stapp, uh, and my co-founder Caleb Watney is also his Twitter handle is just his name. Um, we're active on Twitter. It's another thing we didn't discuss too much here, but like we think that engaging on Twitter and like the public policy discourse is still underrated. People spend a lot of time there, but it's still like, it's where the conversation happens. Um, so I hope your audience is at least following along what, what people are talking about on Twitter. It actually matters for what uh, policymakers end up doing. Um, and so yeah, we'll, we'll see you on Twitter. All right. Thanks, Alec. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.